0: God, we thank you so much for uh, the privilege of being able to gather together to hear uh, your word. And Lord, we pray that you would speak, God, that you would make things so clear to us today. Uh, Lord, we're living in a time in which uh, the topic of sex and sexuality is all too confu- uh, confusing. And so Lord, I pray uh, for a level of clarity that comes from your spirit. Lord, I pray for an open heart today, I pray that you'd search us, that you would guide our time in your word. God, we need you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, True Sexual Morality, Daniel Heimbach points out that the nation's first museum of sex opened up in September of 2002. The purpose of this was to celebrate how New Yorkers led the nation, uh, introducing prostitution Introducing strip shows and pornography and even an open approval of homosexual behavior. The very next month in October of 2002, uh, Miss America Erica Harold upset the officials of the Miss America pageant by announcing that she was going to campaign for sexual chastity. So these officials were concerned that there'd be uh, too much controversy around the reigning Miss America uh, who'd be associated with urging teens to abstain from sex outside of marriage. Stories like these, and there, there are dozens and dozens of these stories, illustrate how rapidly Americans are changing in terms of what they view as acceptable sexual behavior. Because the reality is those stories were some 20 years ago. Since then, sexual behavior has quickly evolved into self-expression and self-identity. That sexual behavior is no longer just about promiscuity, something that you do. Sexual behavior now is about identity. It's expressing who you are. And we've seen this, uh, this conversation over the last several decades just c- quickly evolve. It's moved from saying, you can't tell me who I can or cannot have sex with heterosexually, I decide, to you can't tell me who I can or cannot have sex with homosexually, I decide, to now you can't tell me my own gender, I decide. And it's moved so, so quickly. And I think behind this, what's, what's driving this sexual revolution is the pervasive mantra that says, be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. This mantra means that if you feel something, you must act upon it or else you're not being true to yourself or else you're being inauthentic, you're you're living a lie, you're not expressing the real you. So now truth is relative, it's fluid. The authority lies in your own feelings and you express your feelings in your sexual identity and in your behavior. And of course, to disagree with this means that you don't accept me, you don't love me, and you're actually on the wrong side of history. Church, we are living in a moral and spiritual crisis that is catastrophic. I think the disastrous sexual revolution that is showing no signs of slowing down has devastating repercussions. This is one of the most challenging and demanding challenge, uh, issues that we face today. And so the question is, is how should the church respond? Well, historically, the church has been very silent on the issues of sex and sexuality. We might say it's too uncomfortable, that it's potentially dangerous, that it's too invasive. And so as a result, many of us not only lack a robust theology of sex and sexuality, but it's also very easy now to think that the problem is out there, it's not in here. That sexual sin is is out in the world. It's not in my own heart. And I think what this passage will do this morning in 1 Corinthians 6 is it's going to push up against that and show us that the problem is not just out there. The problem is in here. The problem is in your heart and the problem is in my own heart. And I think far too often, there, there is more at stake than we realize. In fact, Dr. Russell Moore, who has uh, written an, an article as of late on yet another well-known evangelical leader who not only had a moral failure, but the report came out that he had several, several incidences of sexual abuse. He wrote a response to that. And, and in it, he says this, that is it any wonder that evangelicalism faces a credibility crisis among our young. that The church is bleeding out the next generation, not because the culture is so opposed to the church's fidelity to the truth, but just the reverse. The culture often does not reject us because they don't believe the church's doctrinal and moral teachings, but because they have evidence that the church doesn't believe its own doctrinal and moral teachings. Now, I don't think it's an either-or. It's likely both. But the point is, church, that there may not be a more powerful way to pass the baton of faith onto the next generation and gain credibility in the world than for us as Christ followers to personally live out the moral teachings that we claim to believe in this book, especially in when it comes to sex. And I think our passage today on one hand is strikingly convicting, but on the other hand it is enormously helpful to show us exactly how to do that. If you notice as Pastor Dustin read this text that Paul doesn't just say stop sinning. He doesn't just say be sexually pure. No, Paul is way more helpful than that. And what he does is he he shows us what's underneath the sexual immorality that was taking place in Corinth, and he addresses these two key problems that was driving their sin. Paul's gonna take that on uh, head on this morning as we look at this passage and also show us two life-changing solutions. So two problems and then two solutions as we walk through this text together. Here's problem number one from verse 12 is they had a distorted view of Christian freedom, a distorted view of Christian freedom. Notice in verse 12, Paul doesn't just come out swinging uh, in addressing their sinful behavior. He first addresses their theology. That's really important because our beliefs shape our behavior. And so Paul addresses that first here, and, and, and much of the Corinthians' theology had been distilled into these Corinthian slogans. And we've seen a few of them as we travel through these first five or six chapters. We're gonna see a few more in our passage this morning. If you notice in verse 12, the Corinthian slogan, all things are lawful for me, or in some translations, everything is permissible for me. Paul responds and says, yeah, but not all things are helpful. Right? Paul is, is correcting a misinterpretation of one of his own core ideas. And one of his core ideas, core teachings throughout his writings, and especially at this church, was that God's grace is able to forgive all of your sin. Right? We would say yes and amen to that, but the Corinthians were, were taking that and they were over-applying it. They're saying, great, I'm so thankful that's true. Now I get to act however I want to act. I get to live however I, I want to live because God's grace will just forgive that. And so the freedom of Christ that he's made available to us has now given them license to pursue sexual sin. So Paul is clarifying that. And he says, what should drive our behavior is not can I, but should I or in Paul's words, it's not, is it lawful, but is it helpful? Is it helpful to my growth in Christ, to my relationship with those around me? This could be translated as profitable or good or beneficial. And I think this is a really practical and helpful filter when you and I are making decisions, especially in the sexual arena of, is this beneficial? Right, Paul Even clarifies what he means by this when he says, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Paul is addressing certain activities and behaviors that the Corinthians were participating in that they thought they were free to do. But in reality, those activities and those behaviors were actually playing the role of master in their lives. They were being dominated by them. They were enslaved to them. So Paul is showing us here that the issue is not just, is this inherently sinful or not? But the issue is, am I doing something in which the result has an enslaving factor to it in my life? And if it does, it should be avoided. Paul is correcting, again, their distorted view of freedom that Jesus has made available. That Christianity is not about God in Christ handing you an unlimited grace card that you get to swipe every time you sin. That's not freedom and that's not grace. That is cheap grace and it's unbiblical kind of grace. That Jesus did not set us free so that we can do whatever we want to do. Jesus Christ set us free so that we can do whatever God wants us to do. Christian freedom is not doing whatever you want to do. Christian freedom is not doing whatever you want to do and being fine with it because you have all you need in Jesus. That is the freedom and the picture that we have throughout the New Testament. So Paul addresses this problem head on, but he also addresses problem number two here in verses 13 through 17, their misunderstanding of the body's purpose. So they had issues not just related to Christian freedom, but how am I to use my own body? So the Corinthians thought that, yes, God will destroy my body in the end, but they wrongly concluded that the body has no value. That what's most important, and maybe the only thing that's important, is my soul, is my, my spiritual life. So I can do and, and, and live however I want to live in my body. Notice another Corinthian slogan in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is meant for food. God will destroy both in the end. Now, on one hand, there's a little bit of truth in this. Food and stomach belong to the present age. God will do away with both of them in the end. But Paul will not allow them to take that slogan and apply it to sinful sexual behavior. See, the Corinthians logic went something like this, that since everything is permitted and since food is for the stomach and the stomach is for the food, after all, God will destroy both in the end. And since all bodily appetites are essentially all alike, that must mean that the body is for sex and sex is for the body. And since God's gonna destroy both in the end, I get to do with my body whatever I want to do. Now, Paul is going to point out that their conclusions are dead wrong. They are misunderstanding the purpose of the body. And in fact, Paul provides three purposes of the body in verses 13 and 17 that are really helpful in the area of sexual morality. Here's purpose number one. In verse 13, Paul makes it clear that your body is for God glorification, not self-gratification. Paul makes it clear at the end of verse 13, he explicitly says, the body is for the Lord. just want to pause there for a moment because this is a very different starting point in terms of thinking about our bodies than any other message we hear out in the world. The message out in the world and what we are driven by today is to do whatever with your body that will give you the most pleasure, what you can see, what you can touch, what you can do, what you can listen to, what you can engage in. We are drowning in a culture that shouts at every turn, do whatever pleases your body. But the message of the Bible at almost every turn is use your body for the glory of God. And I think that is when you boil this conversation down, I think the fundamental question that shapes and determines our pursuit of sexual purity is do you live using your body to predominantly please yourself or to please God? What is your ultimate aim? What is driving you and the decisions that you make? Is it self-gratification or is it God-glorification? See, in these verses, God is making it abundantly clear that your body, my body, is not ultimately for me. Your body is ultimately for God. Therefore, God determines how we ought to use our bodies and how we should experience pleasure. Notice Paul adds to this though, something very interesting. Verse 13, he also says that the Lord is for your body. Isn't that interesting? I think what what God is saying in this text is that your body should not be absolutely miserable just because it's for the Lord. Yes, your body is for the Lord, but the Lord is also for your body. So listen to this. The creator of the universe has designed your body in such a way as to experience pleasure. Pleasure within God's boundaries is a good thing. Can I get an amen about that this morning? Right? Think about it. God has created you with eyes to behold beauty. He's created you with ears to listen to music. He's he's created you with taste buds to enjoy different flavors skin to feel, and dozens of other ways to experience pleasure. Look, sometimes we think that God is is only concerned about my soul. He's only concerned about my spiritual life and that he doesn't really care about me physically. And yet, Psalm 139 makes it clear that God has fearfully and wonderfully created you. He has designed your body in such a way for you to live and to experience pleasure in a way that gives him glory. God is not against your body. He's not indifferent toward your body. God has created you with a specific purpose and with intentionality. And I want you to hear this this morning. I want you to to dwell on this reality, even throughout the week, that God did not make a mistake when he created you. God did not make a mistake when he created you. There was no oops moments when God was forming you and shaping you. He did not make a mistake when he created you. And if you do not believe that, you will be questioning if, if God knew what he was doing when he made you. You will be tempted to believe that that God made a mistake in in making my body look a certain way. Or God made a mistake when he made me a male or when he made me a female. Or God made a mistake when when he gave me this kind of desire and I don't know what to do with this. Or God made a mistake when, when he said, don't do certain things with your body, such as don't look lustfully at someone who's not your spouse Or don't look at pornography, which is a form of digital prostitution. Or don't masturbate. Or don't commit premarital sex or or extramarital sex. Or don't commit acts of homosexuality, right? And in the process of, of questioning these things, you will quickly justify going against God's design for your body and the pleasure that he wants you to experience. Look, sometimes we don't fully realize the impact of the messages that we hear throughout the culture and its impact on how we live. We live in a world that says, no one tells you, how to use your body, how to experience pleasure, but you. And that is so anti-biblical to what we see throughout the scriptures. We're so prone to forgetting that, yes, God is for my body and my body is for the Lord. Therefore, I use my body, I experience pleasure in a way that gives God glory as as an act of worship, not self-gratification. So that's purpose number one, your body is to glorify God. Number two here though, I think is also very helpful is that your body is for eternal good. Yes, our physical bodies, or as Paul puts it elsewhere, our outward man is wasting away and yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Yes, that's true. But in verse 14, Paul declares that as God raised Jesus up by his power, he will also raise up and our bodies. Paul's gonna unpack the, the bodily resurrection of Christians more in chapter 15, specifically in verse 12. But the point here is that God will not only raise up the soul, he will also raise up our bodies. So think about the implications of that. The implication of our future bodily resurrection is what we do with our bodies matters, And for the Corinthians here, they were thinking, again, only the soul matters. That's the only thing that's valuable. My body is not. Therefore, I'm going to get the best of both worlds. I'm going to live it up here in the earth and experience as much pleasure as I want. And I'm going to get heaven in the end. But Paul says, no, no, no. In fact, the way that we live in our bodies impacts the shape of our spirituality, The way that you live out your faith in your physical body reveals where you will spend eternity. We saw this last week in chapter six, verses nine and 10. The sexual immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says it twice there to feel the weight of it, that what you do with your bodies absolutely matters and it reveals the genuineness of your faith. It's not only just enough to say, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to go, go to heaven and live however I want to live in my body. No, if you do that, that's actually going to prove that your faith is not genuine. And so we prove the genuineness and the validity of our faith in Jesus that saves us in the way that we live in our bodies. Your body is of eternal good. And then thirdly, another purpose here in verses 15 and 17 is that your body is interwoven with Jesus. This is beautiful here. Let me read verses 15 to 17. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Notice what Paul is saying here about sex. We're going to unpack this more next week. Paul's point here is that sex is gloriously more than just a physical experience. Sex is more than just a physical transaction. Sex is an all-encompassing union of the most intimate kind imaginable. And what Paul is saying here is that because of your faith in Jesus, you are now united in Christ. You, your soul, your body are members of Jesus. And so when you became a Christian, you didn't just walk down an aisle. You didn't just pray a prayer or raise your hand or become religious. You became united in Jesus Christ and Jesus lives in you as well. And so Paul is saying here, when you commit sexual immorality, or when you have sex with a prostitute, you are bringing Christ into that. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you are dragging Jesus with you in those activities, and that should help govern the decisions that we make, especially in the sexual arena. Now, put this all together here. When we think about these three purposes, if our bodies are meant for God-glorification, not self-gratification, And if our bodies are for eternal good and they're interwoven with Jesus, then why would we turn to anything or anyone else in this world, including our own feelings, to tell us how to use our bodies and how to experience pleasure, right? These verses make it clear that God is worthy. God is all wise to tell us how to use our bodies for his glory and for our Good, and the Corinthians were sidestepping that and were coming up with all kinds of rationalizations to pursue sexual sin. So Paul here, he's enormously helpful looking at these two issues underneath their sin that was driving it, but Paul doesn't stop there. Paul also provides what I think are two life-changing solutions to be free from sexual immorality. The first one is in verse 18 where Paul makes it abundantly clear. He says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Look, you cannot miss this. Paul's strategy for you and for me as it relates to sexual immorality is to flee from it, to flee from it, to run from it, in fact, the, the, the tense in the Greek here could be translated as keep running from sexual immorality, right? Don't play around with it. Don't flirt with it. Don't get as close as you possibly can to it. No, Paul is saying to run from all sexual immorality. Now, this this Greek word that's translated as sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, and it refers not just to, to extramarital sex, it actually refers to any sexual activity that's outside or beyond what is experienced between a husband and a wife in a marriage and in a covenant. This would include sins of lusting after someone who is not your spouse. This includes pornography. This includes masturbation. This includes premarital sex. This includes extramarital sex. This includes homosexuality. This includes any sexual sin beyond or outside what a husband and a wife are to experience within a marriage. And Paul says to run from it. Now, is that the message that we hear in the world? Is that that what we're taught in how to become the most authentic version of yourself to run from sexual sin? I mean, we, we don't even hear that phrase these days, sexual sin. This is sexual uh, exploration. This is to express yourself. This is a way to identify yourself. And yet Paul is saying here very, very clearly, flee from all sexual immorality. Now, just to encourage us this morning, whenever you see a command in the negative throughout the scriptures. God is always doing two things. He's always protecting us from something much worse, and he's always trying to guide us into something much better. Whenever you see that, don't do something, avoid something, flee something, he's always doing those two things. This reminds me of the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. Joseph, who was serving Potiphar in Egypt, he was doing everything right, God was uh, giving him favor and blessing all that Joseph was doing. Potiphar was entrusting Joseph with with more and more responsibilities. But then Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph numerous times. She found him handsome. She found him well-built. And verse 12 of Genesis 39 says this, that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me but he left his garment in her hand and did what? He fled, he ran. In fact, he he got out of that house as quickly as he possibly could. My question for you this morning is, is this the way that you respond to the sexual temptation that's in your life? Is that your mindset? as it relates to sexual temptation, whether it's from someone with whom you're not married to, or maybe it's the temptation of going to a certain kind of website, or maybe it's it's certain sinful thoughts or sinful desires. Are you running from it, or are you getting as close as you possibly can to it? Just to illustrate this, this winter, um, my family and I, we've been using our fireplace a lot. It's been a cold winter, as you guys know, and I'm sure you've, you've used your fireplace a lot as well. And one thing that we've noticed is that it is a horrible combination having a fireplace and a 10-month-old. Like, we, we fire that thing on, and, and our 10-month-old Milo sees it immediately, and it's like a magnet. He starts crawling as fast as he can to that fire, and you can look at his eyes. He's just engrossed with it. He's like, oh, what's this? And he starts crawling as fast as he can, and we have to like scoop him up in time before he burns himself. We have to create these barricades so he doesn't harm himself. And we're like talking about this, like why does Milo do that? And we concluded it's because he doesn't understand the danger of fire. He does not understand the danger of fire. And I just wonder this morning if if there are some of us in this room who are getting as close as you possibly can to sexual sin because you do not understand the danger of sexual sin in your life. I just wonder if somehow you have in your own mind convinced yourself that sexual sin is really not that all dangerous. That maybe you've believed the lie that no one's gonna find out about this. This is not that big of a deal. Maybe you're believing the lie that this isn't hurting anybody. Maybe you're believing the lie that, man, I I deserve this. I've, I've earned this. But I just wonder if some of us are getting as close as we possibly can because you do not understand how dangerous sexual sin can be in your life. This morning, I just want to say, as lovingly as I possibly can, that if you have that type of mindset, at the very best, you are acting like a spiritual 10-month-old. And I want to remind you and to encourage you not to play games with sexual sin that this will not turn out the way that you think it will, that it ruins lives, it damages marriages, impacts children, hurts churches, breaks off relationships, and it leads to a host of other sins. That's why Paul tells young Timothy, he says to flee, 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 youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So how do we do this? How do we flee? How do we run from sexual sin? Let me break this down and, and get as practical as I possibly can. I'm going to use an acronym uh, this morning, actually the word flee, F-L-E-E, just to give us some practical steps of knowing how to flee, how to be freed from sexual immorality. Okay, let me walk through these. F, here the first one, is to fight in the war against sexual sin. Fight in the war against sexual sin. Ephesians 6 reminds us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against spiritual satanic forces. Therefore, we have to have this mindset of engaging in the battle, of fighting in the war, because That's exactly what it is, whether you know it or not. This is a war for your own soul. And you have a real, a real spiritual enemy, Satan himself, who wants to destroy you. He wants to take you out. He doesn't just want to cause you to stumble or to kind of flirt with these things. No, His end goal is to destroy you. And the reality is, is that he studies you. He, he, he knows you. He, he watches you. He's been mastering temptation for thousands of years. And look, he knows all of your weak spots. He, he knows all of those, those moments throughout the day. Your weakest moment of the day, he knows it. He knows the person that you're most tempted with. And so therefore, we, we cannot be relaxed in this battle. We, we cannot be disengaged. We cannot have this mindset of, of, yeah, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I'm just going to walk through this. No, it takes intentionality. The scriptures command us to be alert, to be sober-minded, to put on the full armor of God and to stand firm. So fight in the battle because that's exactly what it is, whether you know it or not. The L here is to look to Christ. Because you become what you behold, we don't want to just focus on ourselves and our own ability. That's not where the power comes. Our power comes from standing firm in the mighty strength of God. And we do this by obeying Hebrews chapter 12, which tells us to look to Christ. He's the founder. He's the perfecter of our faith to throw off every sin that entangles us and to consider Jesus. Look, This is really important because part of your goal every day as a Christian Should be, I want to fill my heart, fill my soul with the beauty of Jesus so that I am so satisfied in him that I'm not hungry and and for me to go and look for satisfaction in sin or in other ways. And so to look to Christ, fill up with Jesus. Uh, The E here is to exchange lies for truth. Like every temptation is rooted in a lie. Every temptation is making a false promise, offering us something it will never deliver upon. Right? It comes to us and says, "Do this and you'll be satisfied." Or do this, no one will know about it. This is just private. Or do this, this won't hurt anybody. Do this, you absolutely deserve this right now. And so for us as followers of Jesus, we need to identify those lies that we are hearing from temptation and to exchange them with the truth from God's word, a truth about who God is, a promise from his word, an aspect of the gospel in order to combat the lies from the enemy. And then the last e here is to expose yourself to the light for us to find trusted and safe accountability people that can walk alongside of us, where we can share our struggles, share our temptations with, and they can help carry that burden for us to bring it to the light, to stop hiding, and to stop pretending. Like This is just a basic strategy for how to flee sexual sin, but I also want to address the question of, of why we should flee, why we can flee from sexual sin, because Paul addresses this beautifully in verses 19 and 20. Notice the second solution here that Paul wants us to know is that Jesus gave his body in order to make your body new. Look at verses 19 and 20 and the hope that's in them. It says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Look, these verses are so important. Because when we start talking about sexual sin and and sexual immorality, it can fill us with all kinds of emotions. It can fill us with pain and hurts, thinking this will never go away. It can fill us with shame from our past, thinking we'll never escape this. It can fill us with just the present struggle that we go through, wondering, will we ever escape this? It can fill us with with questions like, why do I keep coming back to the same temptation time and time and time again? It can fill us with confusion, wondering why would God give me this desire when I can't act on it and I don't know what to do with it. And just, it's this unfulfilled desire. Or maybe to be filled with despair, thinking no one truly understands what I'm going through. No one can really know what I'm struggling with. And I love these verses because these verses address the question, the so important question, is there any hope for the sexual broken? Is there any hope for those who have absolutely blown it when it comes to sexual purity? Is there any hope who falls short of God's standard of sexual purity? And this passage emphatically says, yes, there is hope. These verses tell us that Jesus gave up his body in order to make your body new. And I love these verses, but I also love verses 9 and 10, where after Paul lists all of these sins, the sexual immoral, the person who practices homosexuality, the adulterer, the liar, the greedy, goes down all this list, and then he says, such were some of you. In other words, that's who you were in the past. That's not who you are anymore, that your past does not define you, that your failures, they they have no hold over you, that your shame and your sin, they have no power to dictate how you are to live your life. That yes, it's true that you were enslaved to your sin. Yes, it's true that your master used to be sin, but the scriptures declare, but God, but God through Jesus washed you clean, but God through Jesus sanctified you and justified you and made you new by his grace. And that is what we declare over our lives in the midst of all the painful emotions that you might be feeling right now in this moment. Look, and it raises the question, how in the world is this possible? How can the dirty be made clean? How can the guilty and the condemned be made innocent? It's verses 19 and 20 that Paul wonderfully declares, your body is not your own. You were bought with a price and the price was Jesus's own blood. Look, I love this. It makes me think of, of, a, of a Carfax report that God, God of our own lives, if this was even possible. And he reads the report in our lives and it says, too many collisions, too busted up, too many accidents, not worth the price. And yet God, verses 19 and 20, declares, I'm going to pay for your redemption in full with the with the blood of my own son. Look, that was the price that God paid in order to bring forgiveness into our lives. Jesus Christ got up on a cross and he died in your place to pay for all of your sin, your past, present, and future sin, all of it. Even, even the sin that no one else knows about that's in your life, Jesus has paid for that. And look, he's made He's made grace available. It's free for you to accept it, to believe in it, and to embrace it so that he can make you new. Look, and the reality is, and I know this because it's so true, that because this is spiritual warfare, that we have an enemy who right now, in this moment, Satan himself, who is the accuser of the brethren, who loves to throw accusation after accusation, who loves to spew lies to us, that he might be speaking to some of us right now in this moment. That he might be saying, no, 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 not you. You're not worthy enough to receive grace for Jesus. And maybe he's saying to some of us, you're too sexually broken for grace. That maybe he's saying... You've blown it way too many times. There's no grace for you. Could he be saying right now, your your pain is just too deep. You you can't experience healing and freedom. I just wonder if he's been saying those lies to some of us for years. And so this morning, what I want to do right now in this moment is I want to declare to you on the authority of Jesus Christ that you are, are not too sexually broken for grace. That you have not blown it too many times for grace not to be lavished upon your life. That God's grace is available to you in Jesus. He knew, he knew all of the sin that you were going to commit even before he went to the cross and he still went there anyways and he paid for it in full. Look, I I know that his grace is available. I know his grace can make you new because I know my own story. I know my own testimony. I know my own failures in this arena. I, I am a product of God's grace and a testimony that will gladly testify that because Jesus gave up his own body, he made my body new and he can do the same for you today. Praise God that he loves to forgive more than we love to sin. Amen. Now, as Paul concludes, because you were bought with the precious blood of Jesus, Paul is encouraging us now to live our lives with the realization that our bodies are now filled with the Holy Spirit, that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Look, this is how committed God is to making you new. He he is making his home within you. He's living inside of you if you're a follower of Jesus. God's that committed. He wants to come and live inside of you and renew your desires. He wants to give you power and victory over these struggles. He wants to bring healing over the pain that's in your life. Church, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body as we close this morning and just bow your heads and just close your eyes for a few moments here. Just wanna give us a chance to, to just sit and bask in the grace of God. Just want us to just take a moment, allow God to search our hearts to confess sin. Maybe you need to just stop playing around with sin and confess it and put up some wise boundaries in your life. Maybe you need to read verses 19 and 20 over and over and over again and to declare the truth that there is grace for you. That God knows all of your sin. He knows all of your shame. He knows all of your secrets and loves you, wants to forgive you, and wants to make you new right now in this moment.